I have a, just a straightforward, succinct truth for you this morning. Just one that we're gonna just unpack and rejoice in, let it flood us. And that simple, straightforward, very succinct truth is this. That the resurrection of Christ means I can be raised spiritually now and physically later. This really is the uh, essential point of several phrases in Romans 6. So take your Bibles. Let's open into Romans chapter 6. Let's spend one more week in these first 14 verses. It's the final bookend Sunday of Holy Week. And we spent last week in these verses looking at what it meant to be dead to sin. I want us to see this week what it means to be alive to God because that's what God desires. That's what he wants. That's how it is in his kingdom. It's not wanted dead or alive. In God's kingdom, it's wanted dead and alive. And that's what these first 14 verses of Romans 6 lay out for us. We're gonna take special aim at what it means to be alive to God. You'll notice that in these verses, the word death or died is oh, about 14 times. You'll find that the word life or live is mentioned about seven times. So it's a, a predominant theme in these first 14 verses. Let me read them for you. Follow along with me. Let's let the word of God just lean into us, overwhelm us, challenge us. And then we'll see what it would say to us about the idea of being alive to God. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, watch this, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves, say the next 10 words with me, church, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace." fantastic set of verses that show us what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God. To tackle the last phrase, being alive to God, I want you to notice three resurrections mentioned in this set of verses. The first two are about you and me. They're about your physical resurrection and your spiritual resurrection. Now, I want to say it to you up front in a very transparent fashion, 
It's hard to know precisely which resurrection Paul is referring to sometimes when it comes to me and you. I've taken my best shot at it, but if we see this differently, man, no, no problem, right? I have some reasoning. Let me show you what I think are two times Paul is talking about your physical resurrection, and I think two times he's speaking of your spiritual resurrection. First of all, look at verse 5 and verse 8. I think he's speaking here of our future physical resurrection. He says in verse 5, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And I base this on, first of all, the, the sense of the words, uh, we shall certainly be. There's, there's a hint of like future tenseness there. But also the following verse speaks about the body of sin being brought to nothing. That again has the sense of like, okay, there's a future event happening and once you'll shed your old tent and you'll get an incorrupt, incorruptible new body. I think he's speaking here of the future physical resur resurrection. Verse eight, it says, we believe that we will also live with him. Again, the phrase we will also kind of hints at something about to take place. So again, I wouldn't fight you on that, but I tend to think he's speaking here of a future resurrection. And Paul here is very assured of his future status. And it's because of the resurrection of Christ. And let's just pause here and say, that is beautiful news for all of us who are aging. <laughs> that there is a future resurrection. And we are guaranteed, watch this, of a new body because Christ received a new body at his resurrection. This is glorious news. When you wake up with aches and pains you didn't know you had the day before and you did nothing except go to bed, you're like, how did this happen, right? <laughs> On a more serious note, there are those who have chronic illnesses. Disease strikes. Let's just be even more honest. There are those who aren't aging. They're actually very young and they're experiencing chronic illnesses or disease or cancer hits the person who's only 30 or leukemia strikes the 22-year-old. You realize that at every stage, we all are brought face-to-face -face with our own mortality. And for those who are in Christ, the resurrection means this isn't the only body I'll ever have. It's not the last one I'll wear. Amen. I heard this week of an elderly lady who is suffering from a chronic illness. Some days are worse than others. And on those days, sometimes folks will interact with her and they'll say, oh, it seems like today you're just really suffering more than usual. And she says usually, nothing the resurrection won't cure. <laughs> She's spot on, isn't she? This is what Paul is saying. There is a guarantee of a future physical resurrection because of Christ's resurrection. The second resurrection he mentions is, I think, a spiritual resurrection, referring to that moment that God brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We can use the word salvation, conversion, the moment one believes and is regenerated, converted, saved. This is the moment of being made alive to God's spirit. And I think Paul is referencing this in verse 11 and 13. And it's mainly because I sense in these two phrases more of a present tense current situation kind of tone. Do you see verse 11? Consider yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the insinuation is you were dead before God, but now you are alive. So reckon this to be true. Calculate this. Verse 13, as those who have been brought from death to life, 
And so the, 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 the sense here is that Paul is, is seeing his present status and he's connecting these as well to Christ's resurrection. And so without belaboring the point more, let's just be clear that these two resurrections are hinged to the third resurrection in this text. And that's Christ's bodily resurrection. Now, as you're looking at this chart, I hope you're realizing this looks a lot like last week. You're, you're tracking perfectly. Just as his death to sin is the fuel for our own death to sin, so his resurrection is the fuel for our resurrections, the spiritual one and the physical one. Notice the phrases used about Christ's resurrection. Here's the third resurrection referenced in the text. Verse four, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Verse nine, Christ being raised from the dead. Now back in verse four, there's an interesting extra bit of information. Paul here is not content to say Christ just arose from the dead. He actually says Christ was raised from the dead, indicating there was an action taken upon him. And he tells us by whom? The Father, the Father's power, the Father's glory. And maybe you're wondering, well, why is it that, that Christ's resurrection is a lot of times mentioned to be by the Father? Well, there's two reasons. The first one's plainly simple. It's because the Son was dead. Don't minimize the physical aspect of the crucifixion and burial of Christ. It was bodily. Every bit of his humanity physically, literally died. So the son could not just get up. He was dead. So the father took action to raise the son by his own glory and power. But because the father did that, we know the father was now satisfied with the son's sacrifice. This is why in Romans, I think later or earlier, even Paul says that he was raised for our justification. You could easily say he was raised because of our justification. God accepted the price, heard the words, it is finished, knew the atonement was complete and raised the son, brought him back to life in bodily form. And so Paul is very clear to understand and to make sure we understand this is the resurrection. It's the son being raised by the power of the father as a vindication and as a sign of satisfaction. Another thing about these phrases is quite intriguing to me. I think Paul not only shows us that he's assured of Christ's resurrection and how it is the link to our own spiritual and physical resurrection, but I would even go as far to say this. I think Paul, in some sense, is assuming Christ's resurrection. Notice in this text, he really doesn't spend a lot of time, if any, with evidential nature, the evidential nature of the resurrection. He doesn't try to, to prove it, does he? He actually just kind of assumes it. That's his posture. Of course it's true. Have you ever wondered why that is? Why Paul has this sense of assumption and then bases both the spiritual and physical resurrection of believers on this fact? It's because the evidence is overwhelming. I'd remind you, just in brief, that over a period of, month, of a month, Christ was seen by more than 500 people. That's just the tip of the iceberg of the evidence. That alone suffices any court of law then and now. We're not talking about an, uh, you know, an offline sighting by one person who comes and reports it third hand. We're not talking about just a, 
you know, some kind of vision in the sky in a moment someone makes up. We're talking about 40 days of appearances in flesh and blood, sometimes even touched by people, i.e. Thomas. Sightings by 500 of him serving, walking, ministering, eating. This was considered reality in the first century. So much so that it was so real that those who didn't want this truth to get out began to make up lies about how they could keep it hidden, such as his body was stolen. But the truth was out. It was known. The evidence is astounding. Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. And the, in the first century especially, it wasn't really a question. It was clearly known. And so Paul here takes this almost assumptive posture. And, and I think in some sense he's saying this, the burden of proof to say the resurrection isn't true is on those who don't believe it. It's not on the Christian community to try to prove that it is. The evidence is already in. It is a fact. That's why Paul here says this fact, this spiritual reality, I would even say this evidential historical reality, I mean, it is the key to our own spiritual and physical resurrection. You are not pinning your hopes. You're not basing your hopes on something that's a wish or a might be. You are banking on what is reality, evidential historical truth. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And this is what feeds and fuels and sources your spiritual resurrection that God saves people who believe in him, who trust him for forgiveness. And then those who are in Christ, when they die and he returns, he will raise their body and give them a new body. Christ's bodily resurrection by the glory of the Father fuels both of those. Amen? Hallelujah, church. There are some verses that lean into this as well in other parts of the New Testament. This idea of spiritual life now, physical life later. Uh, let me just show you a few of these. And a few of these can be stark. So I want to warn you, we're headed into territory where our language must be precise. First of all, regarding a, a future physical resurrection, look how 1 Corinthians 15 leans into this, especially verse 20. There are more, but here's just one that I, I really want you to notice. Here, Christ is considered the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word first fruits just refers to he's the initial one. He's the sign. He's the beginning point. And here Paul is saying, and by the way, he uses the word fact, doesn't he? In fact, Christ has been raised. And so because he's been raised, he's the beginning point, the first fruits, the initial one of all those who are in him. So just as Christ has been raised, so will all those who are in him be raised. A guarantee of a future physical resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. As I think about Christ sourcing our, our physical resurrection, being the, the key to that, I'm also reminded that, that he's the key to our spiritual resurrection now. And so until we are connected to God through Christ, until we know God through Christ, we're not spiritually resurrected, which means we are spiritually dead. This is what Ephesians says, chapter two. Paul is speaking to these Ephesian believers about their former condition. And he says in chapter two, verse one, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. 
He doesn't say you were living them, does he? He says you were dead in them. So it lets me know that really until you're in Christ, you're actually not living at all. You may be walking around, your body may be pumping blood through its systems, but in God's eyes, you're actually just a walking zombie. You're dead. So we need a spiritual resurrection in order to be assured of a later future physical resurrection. Speaking of this spiritual death, I'd remind you this is echoed in Revelation. When at the very culminating point of history, it says that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second what, church? Death. It's not the second life. Nowhere do death and Hades and those who don't believe and are cast into hell with death and Hades, the lake of fire, I should say, nowhere does it say that they go here to live forever. Actually, they go here to die forever. You see, it's not true that everyone lives somewhere forever. That's actually not true. Only those who are in Christ live somewhere forever. Everyone else dies somewhere forever. Jesus echoed this in the Gospels. And speaking of those who refuse to repent and believe, he said, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal, what church? Life. And so you can equate eternal punishment with the opposite of eternal life, which is what? Eternal death. So it's stark news this morning. But I'd remind you what Parker said a few weeks ago, which I thought was so insightfully beautiful. Good news is heard best when it's set against the black backdrop of our sin. And this morning, the, the beautiful diamonds of the death and resurrection of Christ, I hope you see them in all of their grand glory against the backdrop of your sin and death. And Paul here is clearly saying in Romans 6 that until you are in Christ, you will not be able to die to sin and you'll not be able to be alive to God. So I hope you see our simple truth just kind of emerging when it comes to the resurrection, Christ's and ours. And it's this, that the resurrection of Christ means I can be raised spiritually now and physically later. Will you say it with me, church, together? The resurrection of Christ means I can be raised spiritually now and physically later. Now, as you ponder this, I want to give you one caveat that will help bring this week and last week together. I'm going to throw a new diagram your way in a moment. Just hang with me. Because we've seen in a simple chart that the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ feeds both our own death and our resurrection. But I think if we're not careful, we can almost draw a line between his death and resurrection that's... Um, and I'm, I'm going to be very transparent with you here, very pastorally candid, a line that's almost too close for comfort. We're, we can, if we're not careful, almost divide them in a way that they don't need to be divided because in the text, I just refer back to the text, back to our Bibles, the passage. In all honesty, his death and resurrection are seamlessly woven together in these 14 verses. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, as we read them, you, you found yourself... Hearing phrases like the resurrection and then the death and the death, resurrection. It was almost like they just can't be separated. So I know we're doing that in these two weeks, but I want to be careful that we don't do that to the extent that we think, well, they're always separated. No, they're, it's a very symbiotic relationship. 
They live together. They exist together. There is a difference, but there's an intriguing inseparability. In the text here, each of the resurrection phrases, what precedes it is a death phrase. And you can turn that equation around. Each of the death phrases, what follows it is a resurrection phrase. And so for sure, one does not exist without the other. And here's the point. The gospel is both, not either. And I want you to see that really the circle that you live in, the way to be dead and alive, is, realize that, is to realize that you share in Christ's death and resurrection. You are immersed into that. So the gospel isn't just his death. The gospel isn't just his resurrection. It's truly both. Now, on the heels of that, let me say that it's okay at times and in seasons to take a look at just his death. That's appropriate. In moments and on occasions, we take a look at just his resurrection. But we have to have the discipline to come back together, to bring them back together appropriately and say, hey, it's both, always. That's the gospel. And it's that gospel that assures us we can be both dead to sin and alive to God, which means to be spiritually raised now and physically raised later. So even in light of the two various diagrams about his death and resurrection, I'd probably rather you keep this one in mind, in which we're sinking now both weeks in this one passage. Dead to sin, alive to God. It's only possible for those who are in Christ. So what is our response to this then? I want to go back to the passage. The same six words that we saw last week. Those verbs. Three of them were the word no. Verse three, verse six, verse nine. He says to believe this. He says to consider this. To calculate its natural Result, it's logical conclusion, and then to present your body. So, what is our response? Is to take our stand on it and to live accordingly. That's the response of, of every person. That should be the response of every person to the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ. We should know it, believe it, consider that this is the natural, uh, logical conclusion to present our bodies to God. This is how we should respond. Here's what this means. That anyone here this morning, in this room, perhaps watching, who's searching for a solid place to put your feet, perhaps you're wondering, you're curious, you're skeptical. None of the world's belief systems seem to be matching up. They don't seem to make sense to you. Here's one that has its roots in historical evidence it has supernatural evidence. Trust the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the, as the foundation for your life. If you're curious or, or, or skeptical or, or wondering, if you're searching, to you I hold out the glorious message of Jesus Christ. The world may call it foolishness, but it's counterintuitive and supernatural. And it will change your life. Just turn to God and believe that Jesus Christ is his son, died on the cross and rose again by the Father. In that moment, God will take you from death to life. He'll save you. He'll, he'll change you. You'll have these promises under your feet, this foundation for living. 
It also means if, if you're, shall we say, suffering, this is great hope for you. Again, regardless of your age, if you're under the weight and the pressure of a body that's failing in Christ, this is not your last wardrobe. <laughs> it's just a fading tent that you're bound to shed. And if the shedding of your tent right now is including a lot of suffering, and I want to hold out to you the gospel of Jesus Christ upon which you can plant your feet that it will not be this way forever. Perhaps this morning you're missing someone or you're mourning. We have a man in our church. I thought of him this week especially and just reviewing and praying through these notes and these scriptures. I thought, how much must he treasure the resurrection? He lost his son a few years ago in a horrific accident. I thought, I bet he clings to Easter Sunday in ways I've not yet experienced, knowing that it's Easter, it's resurrection that guarantees I'll see my son again. I think there's other folks here, widows, widowers, parents, children. You're missing someone today. You're actually inwardly mourning that loss. And Easter means the world to you. Because you know what it says? Goodbyes are not forever in Christ. Amen. So whether you're searching, suffering, missing someone, do you see how every bit of life's hopes find uh, fertile soil in the gospel? The death and resurrection of Jesus. This is why our response should be to know, to believe, to reckon, to consider, and to present. And this is exactly what one of the very first apostles did. He did exactly what Paul mentions here in Romans 6. It's the Apostle John. Do you recall that first uh, Easter morning? He was one of the first runners to the tomb. In fact, he may have been the first male to the tomb. The women went first and they went to anoint the body. But they got there and what? Nobody. They run back and say, hey, he's alive. So Peter and John take off. The Bible says in John 20 that John was the faster of the two and beat Peter there. But he did not go in right away. He peeked in, but Peter was the first to go in. That's just so Peter, isn't it? First to get out of the boat, first to go in the tomb. But John held back for a moment. Kind of like get the sense that he's calculating. He's reasoning, thinking. Peter comes out, John goes in. And the Bible says in John 28 that John saw the linen cloths and the face napkin folded. So here's what John sees. John looks into an empty tomb and he sees an arranged, neatly ordered environment, which says to him, okay, he wasn't just knocked out. He wasn't badly injured and passed out or fell asleep. What badly injured person would take the time to orderly arrange his burial place and fold the face napkin? Who could move the stone in that kind of condition and walk out like, this isn't adding up if I think he just got badly wounded, nor is it adding up if they stole his body. This looks like, in other words, he reckoned, he considered, he looked at what he saw and he said, this is all the evidence for someone who was dead and is now alive. And you can throw the angels in there as well, right? They were sitting there, the soldiers who were dead or acted like dead men. There's other evidence. 
But John, the Bible says, saw all this. He considered it. And then watch this, these two words. And believed. John did in John 28 what Paul said to do in Romans 6. He saw the evidence and he concluded, this is true, I believe. I'm calling you today to see the evidence and to calculate the logical conclusion and believe. Whether you're searching, suffering, missing, or mourning, the resurrection is your hope. And you can be alive to God today through his spiritual regeneration and you can be alive to God physically later by that resurrection. All of that is tied to, inextricably linked to Christ's bodily resurrection. Truly, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen, church? So it's no wonder, you think about John's own experience in conversion, that he'd be the one who would quote the words of Jesus when Jesus was consoling Mary and Martha when Lazarus died. Lazarus had not been raised yet. Christ is on the scene. Here's what he says to Mary and Martha. In fact, would you stand and let's read this together. Here's how John records Jesus' words. In a moment of death, here's Jesus promising the very thing Paul shows us in Romans 6. Church, will you read this with passion together? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we stake our lives not on anything we can do or have earned or have merited or can accomplish. We stake our lives. And quite frankly, God, we stake our death on Jesus Christ. On his death and his resurrection for truly our death to sin and our life to God is inextricably linked to Christ's own death to sin and his life to God. And Lord Jesus, I ask that in this moment, your Holy Spirit would just cause people to look into the tomb, so to speak, and see the overwhelming historical, supernatural evidence that you are alive, that you arose and would come to the supernatural yet logical conclusion that I can believe and give my life to God. Lord, across this room, for those who are watching in their rooms at home, for those who are hearing this days, weeks, months into the future, God, may your word do what only it can do by the power of your spirit. Would you breathe new life into people? And would you energize Christians with resurrection power, provide hope for their future because of Christ? Lord, may this church plant its feet solely on one message for every bit of its hopes, and that is the message that Jesus Christ died and rose again. In the good name of Jesus, the church prays together. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.